Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Robert England was probably one of the deepest men spiritually that I've ever known. This sermon was preached in 2013 at the Pilgrim Nazarene Camp, and it's titled, An Encounter with God. I know you're going to enjoy this excellent sermon.
Jesus a commentary on Isaiah 6.1. John declares that the vision, the vision Isaiah saw, was that of Jesus Christ in his glory. He must surely need Jesus in his pre-incarnate existence. And that is exactly what Abraham saw the day he was sitting, sitting in his tent's door in the heat of the day when he saw three men coming toward him. Because in just a little while, those three men clothed in human form, one of them is called Lord, with all capital letters. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, when they're all uppercase letters, it's Yahweh. Yahweh, and the Yahweh of the Old Testament is the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. All oh, the other two in human form were angelic beings. No wonder scripture says, do not be forgetful to entertain strangers, because you may entertain an angel unawares. When John said that no man hath seen God at any time, he went on to tell us, that the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Philip once asked Jesus to show them the Father, but Jesus said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Oh, thank God, when by faith we see Jesus Christ, we see the Father. Hallelujah. Jesus said, I am my Father Scholars are not in agreement as to whether Isaiah's vision entailed the earthly temple that was very beautiful or the heavenly temple, but it really doesn't matter. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and that was what really mattered. It was an awesome sight, one that he would never, ever forget. Not only did Isaiah see the Lord high and lifted up, but he also saw seraphim about the throne of God. This is the only place in Scripture where seraphim are mentioned. We are not told how many were there. We do know that each of them had six wings. Two wings covered each of their faces, no doubt denoting humility and reverence, for they could not look upon the radiant glory of the Lord. Two wings covered their feet and their lower extremities, indicating their unworthiness to be in the presence of God. And friends, I tell you, when we've done everything God requires of us, we are unworthy servants. We have no, no merit in our hands to bring. Oh, the only merit we have is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thank the Lord. The other two wings were used for flying which suggests their readiness to do the will of God, to serve Him in any way He may direct. The very term seraph comes from a root word, which means to burn. No doubt it spoke of their burning love for God and their burning zeal to do His will. I love to meet people who love God so much it gets out of them. And you don't have to be told, I love the Lord. You know by their lifestyle. You know by where their commitments are that they love God. They love Him with all their heart. Oh, the very sight of the seraphim, no matter how many were there, would have surely caught the attention of Isaiah. 
to be filled with God. He said, then arose an unutterable longing to be filled. He confessed that he had been prejudiced against the National Camp Meeting Association. But he said a conviction was born in upon me as clear and in unmistakable as my identity. And if I would only go to the camp meeting and there confess how I was hungry, I would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, I went to the camp. I frankly told the people about my error. And he said, I sought the prayers of everyone. I told them I wanted the fullness of the blessing that night. And I felt it was the divine will to give it in that hour. I tell you, we don't have to pray all night. We'll get the flag and surrender off and we'll obey God and do his bidding. He said, I then, I then descended to the altar and I knelt there and I sought, I sought the Lord in that hour. He said, by simple faith, and these are his own words, by simple faith, I was enabled I was enabled to take Christ as my sufficiency to fill and satisfy my hungry soul. That instant I received Christ as my wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification. The stillness and emotionlessness of absolute quiet permeated my whole being. The temper seductively suggested the spirit is withdrawn, he said, and you are doomed to disappointment. But Peck said, as quick as thought came, my reply. And I said, with or without feeling, I hear and now take Christ as my all in all. He said, I knew that moment that he was my complete Savior. At once, the most delicious experience was mine that I can conceive. I've never heard anyone call the time of coming into Canaan land the most delicious experience. But after all, the scripture says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So the goodness of his, of his, his filling is a delicious experience. He said there was no joy, no rapture, but something sweeter, deeper than anything before known. The peace of God that passes all understanding. He settled it in upon me, deeper and deeper, sweeter and sweeter, till I seem filled with all the fullness of God. I say hallelujah, thank God for such a blessing. Isaiah's confession of his condition led to his victory, as seen in verses 6 and 7. One of the seraphs flew to an altar to get a red hot coal, which he then applied to Isaiah's point of need. Some think it was the incense altar, while others think it was that great, big, brazen altar. But regardless of which altar it was, the seraph touched Isaiah's lips with a hot coal, not literally, for that would have destroyed his lips, but the burning coal carries the symbolic meaning of purifying and purging the heart. For the seraph said, thy sin, S-I-N, not sin. 
among all the graduates, a high degree of spirituality and even academic uh, fervor. Out of, out of nine graduates, seven were honor students. And uh, the eight was only a little bit under the honor area. And yet, and yet one of our best, maybe two or three, uh, I, thought, I thought one of them was going to the mission field. He was in the missions program. But he's bought a house. He's bought a house in the area. He's married. He has a child now. He said he's just going to work in the local church. And our faculty couldn't figure it all out. A young lady graduated uh, with high honors from our elementary ed, but she's not going to teach in a school. She's going to go on into nurses' training. Now, I'm not going to argue with anybody. I leave them with God. But I tell you, there's something wrong somewhere when we can't fill pulpits and we can't get enough workers out into the field. Oswald Chambers says he thinks God was always calling. Who shall I send and who will go for us? But, but Isaiah, Isaiah never heard it, never heard it until his heart was firm. And when his heart was clean, suddenly his spiritual ears were open and he heard God. He heard God speaking. I would say to you tonight, is this the reason? Is this the reason for declining enrollments at our Bible colleges? Unless a young person is totally surrendered to God's will and has died out to one's own uh, passions, one's ambitions, plans, and wishes. It is not likely that that person is going to hear God call, or if they do hear, have any interest in the call. Isaiah did not hear the Lord call him by name. God didn't say, Isaiah, Isaiah, I want your attention, please. But he simply said, who, who shall I send, and who will go for us? Upon hearing God's call for a workman, Isaiah made a definite decision to be a volunteer. Isaiah's response was immediate and passionate. He said, here am I, send me. I have a feeling God would send some people if they would volunteer. Oh, the songwriter has expressed it well. It may not be on the mountain height or over the stormy sea. It may not be at the battle's front that the Lord will have need of me. But if by a still small voice he calls to pass, I do not know. I'll answer, dear Lord, with my hand in thine. I'll go where you want me to go. There's surely somewhere a lowly place in earth's harvest fields so wide where I may labor in life short days for Jesus the crucified. So trusting my all to thy tender care, and knowing thou lovest me, I'll do thy will with a heart sincere. I'll be what you want me to be. My dear friends, we are exhorted to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Isaiah's desire to be sent by the Lord and to be used by God led to a divine validation of or approval of his own request. For God said, go, go. And I believe God would give the green light to others if they would say, Lord, 
to minister because of some of the details that would soon unfold in the commission that could lead to the prophet's vexation or frustration. For the Lord told Isaiah to go, to go forth and preach, but not to expect great results. In fact, the results might be most shocking, the very opposite of what Isaiah would have expected. Indeed, he said the people will hear you preach, but he said some of them will not heed the message, they will not understand it. They would see with physical eyes, but they would not perceive in their hearts and minds. By rejecting the word and the message of God, people's hearts would become callous, their ears dull and their eyes closed. Friends, light rejected turns to darkness. Indeed, whether it was the pre-flood world before judgment fell, or the remaining days of the old economy, Christ's first advent, or nearly 2,000 years since Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem, Isaiah, Isaiah must have been shocked, because the message is the same. It is without provocation, many are called. But few are chosen. Not because God wants it that way, but because man chooses, chooses to reject. I think Isaiah must have been utterly shocked and vexed at these comments from the Lord. So he cried out and he said, Lord, how long? How long? How long will this terrible condition exist? How long will we keep on preaching to an unresponsive? And God said, until the cities be wasted without inhabitants, and the houses without men, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed man far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Friends, there's coming a day of great, great tribulation, great judgment upon this old world. No doubt the Lord was now telling the prophet without detail. He was no doubt pointing forward to the 70 years of captivity that would come to Judah. And then thereafter the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD because the Jews said, let his blood be upon us. Let his blood be upon us. They didn't know what they were saying. And then I believe he was looking to the time thereafter the Jews would be dispersed throughout the world. Throughout the world until the 20th century when God began letting them come back to Israel. Oh, how providential it was. Verse 13 speaks about a tent or a remnant. A remnant remaining in the land and about a tree, a tree providentially that would continue to grow. God has always had a remnant of people in every way, and he always will, right down to the sounding of the trumpet. Thank God. A tree may be cut down, but if the roots remain, the shoot will start a new tree. Only God knows how near we might be in July of 2013 to the Third World War. I get a magazine entitled End Time. And the editor keeps one informed about 
Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855, USA. As it has been passed, I don't want to